am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. That's what Jesus says in John chapter 14, verse 6. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Acts chapter 4 verse 12 says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. These Bible verses are easy to read with other Christians, but step back and look at a world with over 7 billion people and a myriad of religions. Does the Bible teach that two-thirds of the current world population has it wrong? What if someone was born and raised in Thailand? Odds are that they would become Buddhist since more than 90% of the people in Thailand are Buddhist. How can Christianity claim to be the only way to God when Buddhism and Hinduism predate it? Don't all paths lead to God? Don't these passages just fuel arrogance and cause division? How do we make sense of Bible verses that say Christianity is right and all other religions are wrong? Welcome to Purpose Church. And as you can see from that video, we're gonna buckle up because we have some important things to talk about today. My name is Eric and I'm one of the pastors here. But before we dive in, I wanna tell you about a story that just happened a couple weeks ago. Our, our family, my wife Sarah and I and our four kids, all six of us, were driving home from church. We were pulling out of the Purpose Church parking lot and the kids were talking about Purpose Kids and how amazing it had been. And we were all kind of unpacking our Sunday when all of a sudden Lila, who is, our quietest child by far, Lila says, guys, I have something to say. And so we all quieted down because we didn't want to miss what sweet Lila had to say. And she said, guys, raise your hands if you want to die at Purpose Church. And you guys, we died laughing. I'm just telling you, we erupted. We said, Lila, why would you ask that question? And she said, because I love Purpose Church. It's my favorite place. I love Purpose Church. And I thought to myself, that would be so traumatic for everyone else. That's not a good thing. But you see, for Lila, She's absolutely convinced that Jesus is Lord. She's absolutely convinced that the church is the body of Christ and the best place to be. And maybe that's where you are. Maybe right now you're more solid and grounded in your relationship with Jesus than you've ever been before. That you're connected to Purpose Church and God's transforming your life and it's incredible. But maybe that's where you used to be. Maybe you used to be at a place where you believed in Jesus, you believed in the church, but not so much anymore. Or maybe you grew up in a different religion. And as you're exploring Christianity, you still have lots of questions. Or maybe you think, you know, aren't all religions just kind of basically the same? Well, today the message is for you because today we're asking the question, does Christianity claim all other religions are wrong? And I just want to preface you and prepare you and warn you in advance that today's sermon is, is going to feel like maybe a, a college level lecture or, or a seminary class. We're going to do a, a deep dive into this question because I think it's a really important one. 
Now, now to get us going, I want to talk about the problem with the elephant analogy. When we think about the world religions, we got to talk about the elephant analogy. There's an old story about four blind men who all stumble upon an elephant, though they didn't know it was an elephant. One blind man felt the elephant's trunk and called it a snake. Another felt the elephant's leg and thought it was a tree trunk. The third blind man felt the tail of the elephant and proclaimed it was a rope. And the fourth blind man felt the side of the elephant and concluded the elephant must be a wall. The analogy tries to illustrate that all the world religions are like these blind men, that each religion is describing a different part of the same thing. But here's the problem with that analogy. There's at least three problems with that analogy. Number one, the analogy demonstrates that each of the blind men are actually wrong in their understanding of the elephant. Their conclusions are not equally true. They are factually and equally false. Number two, the analogy arrogantly assumes that all the world religions are blind, yet somehow we as individuals can rightly see the elephant for what it actually is. And the third error with this analogy is that the analogy doesn't take into account any kind of absolute truth or divine revelation, revelation, which most religions claim to have, like Jesus in Christianity, who not only claim to be God, but have the ability to perfectly lead us into a right relationship with God. You, you see, there's this meme that you could see floating around social media that says there are almost 5,000 gods being worshiped by humanity, but don't worry, only yours is right. Sort of making a mockery of the idea that could really one of the religions actually be right? You know, Pastor Glenn has given us this framework for this entire series that has been really helpful. He, he's talked about how when we experience Christ, when we're saved, when we're brought into a relationship with Jesus, we experience something really deep and something significant. But then oftentimes what happens next is something posed as deeper than what we experienced in Christ is a challenge to our faith. There's some kind of seeming contradiction, something that would confront us and make us question whether we could actually believe in the Bible or believe in Jesus. And what we are doing with this series is we're trying to go to the deepest end of the pool. We're trying to go all the way deepest to where we will find truth answers to the biggest questions that we are wrestling with. And I got to say this from the outset, to claim that every world religion is basically saying the same thing is insulting to every world religion. It's sort of a, a popular idea out there that, well, basically every religion is saying the same thing. And as we're going to see together, that is just absolutely not True. And in fact, when it comes to Christianity, it's clear that there is exclusivity within the Christian faith. I mean, look at what Jesus said. Look at the plethora of verses here. Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 6, he, he said, I am the way, not a way. I am the truth, not a truth. I am the life, not a life. No one comes to the Father except through me. 
It was from verses like this that the famous Christian scholar and philosopher and author C.S. Lewis developed what he called the trilemma, which says that Jesus is either a liar, he's a lunatic, or he's Lord. That, that he can't be all of those, that he's one of them. And today I'm going to suggest that because he's Lord, he has all the truth, that he is the way, he is the truth, and he is the life. But, but it's not just here in John chapter 14 that we see the exclusivity of Christ. In fact, it shows up, check out what it says in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 5, for there is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus. Let's go to 1 John chapter 5 verse 12. Salvation has this, whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Let's look at Acts 4 verse 12. Salvation is found in no one else for there is no one other than other, uh, there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Look at what it says in Matthew chapter 7 verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction and many enter through it. And then in John chapter 10, verse nine, Jesus says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. So how did we get where we're at now? Where did it all begin? Well, in the beginning, in the beginning, there was one God. In the beginning, there was one God. Genesis chapter one, verse one says, in the beginning, God, not, not a plethora of God, not multiple gods. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. This idea continues throughout the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament amongst the Jewish people. In fact, one of the most famous passages of scripture, the Shema comes to us in Deuteronomy chapter six, verses four to five, where it says, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Re-emphasizing this idea of God's unity, the, the monotheistic expression of who God is. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, Dan Kimball, he, he writes this. He says, it's important to ask why the Bible begins with the idea of one God who created all things. Israel, the original recipients of the book of Genesis, had been living in Egypt for 400 years where the cultural norm was to worship all types of gods, including the sun, the pharaohs, and animal deities. With this creation story, God was telling the Israelites their true origins that in the beginning, there was only one God, not many. It's why Karen Armstrong, as she wrote in her book, A History of God, she said, there had been a primitive monotheism before men and women had started to worship a number of gods. In the beginning, therefore, there was one God, if so, then monotheism was one of the earliest ideas evolved by human beings to explain the mystery and tragedy of life. 
The question as you look all the way back in history is, did people start out believing in many gods or did they start out believing in one God? And according to Karen Armstrong and many scholars and archeologists and historians, they believe it actually began with monotheism, which perfectly lines up with Genesis. And in fact, let's look at the creation of human beings. So the creation of human beings is told to us. It begins in Genesis chapter two, verses seven to nine, where it says, then the Lord God had formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the breath of life. And the man became a living being. Now the Lord God had planted a garden in the east in Eden. Now we don't know exactly where this is, but as our map just demonstrated somewhere in the Middle East and there he put the man he had formed. The Lord God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. In the middle of the garden were the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Well, then an event happens recorded in Genesis chapter 11 called the Tower of Babel. And here we, we begin to see as you study archaeology, as you discover, as you, as you study the spread of humanity throughout the history, uh, archaeologists notice that it is from this place in, in sort of modern day Iraq, where the Tower of Babel scene took place, that, that humans start to kind of flourish and spread out throughout the world. In Genesis chapter 11, verse four, then they said, come, Let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They tried to, as one unified group of people speaking one language, tried to build a tower high enough to God. Well, God ends up scattering them, giving them many different languages, sending them all throughout the world. And it was in those places, in those movements, when people started to develop their own religions. It was in the year 1500 BC that we see Hinduism become, show up on the historical map. It was in 1440 BC where Judaism, the writings of Judaism begin to show up. Now, obviously we believe and we know as Genesis tells us that God began all things, that he created everything, but it's in 1440 that we begin to see some of the writings of the Jewish people. In the year 600 BC, Shinto and Taoism begin to spread throughout the world. In 563 BC, we have Buddhism coming on the scene. And yet as all of these religions are beginning to develop, the monotheistic Jews or the Israelites were prophesying messages from God that a Messiah or an anointed one would come to save and rescue all of humanity from their sin. That they would know that he was the Messiah because he would be born of a virgin as Isaiah 7 talks about. That that this Messiah would be born in Bethlehem as Micah 5 mentions. That he would take on people's sins as Isaiah 53 talks about and that he would be killed even though he was innocent as Isaiah 53 mentions. 
Well, well, then Christianity gets birthed and Christianity shows up on the scene around the year 30 AD as a fulfillment of Judaism, as a, as a fulfillment of God's plan to save all of humanity. And then almost 600 years later, we see Islam show up on the scene around 622 AD. D Dan Kimball, he, he says this, the entire Bible makes it clear that there won't be multiple ways of being forgiven or restored back to God. There would be one way. And that one way would be through one person, the man, Jesus of Nazareth. According to the biblical story, other world religions are not a reflection of the one true God. And they did not develop from the beginning according to his plan and revelation. They are systems developed by human beings and they do not accurately point us to the one God. So then the question is, well, but is it possible? Do, do all paths lead to God? Maybe you've seen a graphic like this. You've seen an image like this where it mentions various different religions, kind of like the elephant analogy. And you're like, well, I've heard people say, well, maybe just all these religions are sort of leading people on different paths, but ultimately to God. And the reason this, this is unfathomable, honestly, is because if you just look at a few of the major world religions, asking three really big questions, you'll see that they take you into very different places. In fact, I just wanna look at these three questions with you. Who is God? Who is Jesus? And what happens when you die? And we're gonna look at that from a Hindu perspective, from a, an Islamic perspective, and what, is, what does Christianity teach about each of these questions? And I think you're gonna be able to see, wow, there is so much diversity in their answers that they do not lead to the same places. Let's look at the first question together. Who is God? Hinduism teaches there are thousands of gods. Though there is a background force in the universe known as Brahman, in addition to these thousands of gods. Islam teaches there is one God, Allah, but he is distinctly different than the God described by the Hebrew Bible and the New Testament. Christianity, Christianity teaches there is one God who is triune in nature, but one Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As you can see right here, there are very different understandings of who God is. What about Jesus? Who is Jesus? Hinduism teaches that Jesus was a wise teacher and he could be one of many gods, but he certainly is not the only way to God. Islam teaches that Jesus was a prophet, but not the son of God or divine in any sense. Christianity teaches that Jesus is fully God and fully human and only through his death and resurrection can a person be forgiven and saved from their sin. Again, very different understandings about who Jesus actually is. Lastly, what would these three religions say about what happens when you die? Well, Hinduism teaches that when a person dies, they are reincarnated to pay off their karmic debt. Islam teaches there is a paradise and a place of punishment. And entrance into paradise is based on weighing the good and bad one has done in their life. Christianity, however, teaches that getting to heaven or hell is not based on a person's performance or good works, but on whether they have placed their faith in Jesus Christ and what he has done for them. It's why Dan Kimball said there 
are some beautiful truths to be found in other faiths, including some that parallel the teachings of Christianity. These include how to treat your neighbor as yourself, being faithful to your spouse and speaking the truth and not lying. Christian doctrine does not teach that only Christianity has all of the truth, but Christianity acknowledges that the world faiths have many things that are true within their teachings. But acknowledging this does not mean everything each religion teaches is true or that they are all basically the same. Let me give you a demonstration to kind of help. Maybe you're wondering, okay, what, what really is the difference between Christianity and every other world religion? And this is like the most helpful visual I could come up with. Follow me over here. So every other world religion is basically saying this, that if you say these prayers, if you go to these places, if you were raised in this class or this system, or you avoid those things, if you do X, Y, and Z, that one day you may earn God's love, that you may earn his paradise, that, that you may earn his favor. This is even true of atheism, that, that you'll have some kind of intellectual ascent above others. But every other world religion is a climb upwards trying to earn God's love. But Christianity the gospel, the story of Jesus is completely different because this is what Christianity is all about. Christianity says that God looked down on you and I and knowing that we could never climb up high enough to earn his love, we can never do enough to earn his love. God chose to leave heaven and to come down to planet earth to tell you and I that he loves us to tell you and I that he would give up everything for us, that Jesus made it crystal clear. In fact, it's why the gospel of John begins with these profound words. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace and truth. The word Jesus became flesh. It continues in verse 18. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the father has made him known. The, the story of the gospel is that God came down to us to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to demonstrate his love for us by dying on the cross and rising from the dead. It's why Paul picks up on this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 17. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But if Jesus did truly die on the cross and rise from the dead, then you and I can put our full trust and belief and faith in him. But friends, maybe it's the exclusivity of all these religions. Maybe it's some of the confusion that you've felt that has actually driven you to atheism. And before you park your car in atheism and say, well, this makes the most logical sense, 
I think it's time that we, that we offer a challenge to atheism. I, I, wanna, I wanna challenge atheism here for a minute. And, and to help me with this, I'm gonna invite Kareen up here real quick. Come over here, Kareen. Kareen is amazing. She helps lead and give vision and direction for our worship and production here at Purpose Church on Sundays and Wednesdays. Kareen is one of the nicest people I've ever met. She's amazing. But I'm gonna ask Kareen right now to be a little mean. I know it's out of character, but I'm asking you to be mean for a minute. And here's what I want you to do, Kareen. I want you to push me as hard as you can. Okay, now remember, I'm a, I'm a weak pastor, but I want you to push me as hard as you can. Okay, go ahead. Okay, Kareen, that was a little harder than I thought. Okay, here's the thing. I want to ask you a question. As you just witnessed Kareen pushing me, how did you feel about that? In fact, let me, let me ask you this question. How many of you think that was wrong? You, you can comment in the chat. You can talk with the people you're watching with, listening with. How many of you thought that was wrong? Now, I, I can't hear you or read your chats or see you right now. I'm hoping all of you felt that that was wrong. Let me ask you this second question. Why? Without appealing to some higher power or absolute truth or without appealing to God, why do you think that was wrong? You see, that's the question that I really want to pose to begin our challenge of atheism. You guys, thank you, Kareen. You're amazing. You can get out of here. We appreciate you. You see, what that, what that illustration hopefully helped demonstrate for you is that when Kareen pushed me, I imagine all of you either watching or listening, you felt bad. You thought, man, that's not okay. That's wrong. Why? If you're an atheist, if, if, you, if, you, if you believe in the atheistic worldview, you might, for some reason, conclude that that's not okay, but you cannot in any way project that feeling. You cannot project that definition of evil or good on anyone else. This is why atheism is absolutely bankrupt and is not helpful. And you see, when we think about Jesus and the world Jesus was born into, Oh, there were so many beliefs and so many practices that were absolutely accepted that we would look at now and go, that's crazy. Why was that allowed? But it was common. In fact, in the Greco-Roman culture that Jesus was born into, these practices and beliefs were absolutely acceptable. They were absolutely okay. What I'm about to read you, these were normal practices within the first century culture, normal beliefs that Jesus was born into and yet that he stood against. The first one would be this. There was the gladiatorial amphitheater games and they were a form of entertainment where many died for sport. Many would go to these games and didn't think a second thought about it that people were dying for the entertainment of others. What about number two? Older Roman men molested younger boys as a perverted mentorship practice called pederasty. And this was completely acceptable in the secular Greco-Roman culture. Number three, Greek mythology and religion of that day taught that women were Zeus's evil creation. That's just how they thought about women in that culture. Number four, Romans practiced something called exposing, which meant if they had a child they didn't want, usually a girl or a child with a disability, they would abandon the child outside, leaving them to die. Now, if, if, if you're an atheist, you might look at some of these and go, man, those are horrible. But according to the atheistic worldview, where there is no existence for God, there's no existence of God, 
then you, you have no right to look at that and to say that's wrong or that's evil. And yet Jesus stood completely against those kinds of things. In fact, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, we see that every person matters to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 19, we see that babies and children matter to Jesus. In Matthew 8, we see that sick people and outcasts matter to Jesus. In Luke chapter 10, we see that women matter to Jesus. And in John chapter 4, it's clear people of different ethnicities and cultures matter to Jesus. It's why Rebecca McLaughlin, she says this, in 2000, or she said, if you look at the history of how we came to believe that it's not okay to enjoy watching innocent people getting killed or that men and women are equally valuable or that poor people should be cared for or that it's not okay to leave a baby outside to die. The answer is one person, Jesus. It's not atheism, it's Jesus. In fact, Rebecca McLaughlin, she, she later says, in 2014, a historian called Yuval Noah Harari published a best-selling book called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. In it, he says that the idea that human beings are equally morally valuable and that there are such things as human rights, basic protections that every human being is entitled to is just a fiction made up by Christianity. Now, I love this. I love how honest this atheist is. He says, it says, speaking as someone who doesn't believe in God, Harari says, human beings have no natural rights, just as spiders, hyenas, and chimpanzees have no natural rights. This, this worldview, this way of thinking about people, this is where atheism leads. You see, friends, this is why Christians were the first people to invent and build hospitals, not atheists. Because the atheistic worldview can't possibly project any kind of expectation on anyone else to value life, to think that people deserve to be cared for. But Christians, rooted in the Old Testament story of God making people in his image, and then modeling after how Christ died on the cross for every single person, it became obvious for Christians that hospitals and schools and care facilities needed to be built. Rebecca McLaughlin, she goes on to say, if there is no God who created the universe, there is no universal right and wrong. We can all just have different opinions but if there is a creator God, he has the right to tell us what to do. And so I want to land the plane, really helping to go, okay, if there's all these different religions and they're all saying different things and there's atheism, which honestly is bankrupt and it, it, it will not lead to flourishing, what do we do? Which is why I want to say, I want to suggest that the gospel is exclusively and inclusively good news. That the gospel is exclusive. That Jesus is the way, the one way into a relationship with God. But it's inclusive in that it's open. It's an open invitation to every single person. What is the gospel? 
Paul breaks it down really simply in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. He says, now brothers and sisters, I wanna remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. Not by any other belief system, but by this gospel, you are saved. Saved from your sin, saved from your separation from God, that you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, Otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, also known as Peter, and then to the 12. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all of the apostles. And last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. You see, our understanding of the world religions and which one is true and which one has the stamp of God, which one we should anchor our lives to really hinges on the question, did Jesus rise from the dead? Because Christianity is the only faith system. It's the only religion in the world that says, God gave up everything for us, that he died on a cross to make us right with himself, to take our sin, but that he proved that he was God. He proved that he was truth, 100% truth, that he was the way, the truth, and the life by rising from the dead. And so to close, I want to give you and I four reasons that we can believe Jesus rose from the dead. And they come straight from 1 Corinthians 15. The first, the first reason Paul says is because of the disciples. He mentions Peter by name and he says, when Jesus rose from the dead, he appeared to the 12. Why is this significant? Well, because on Friday, when Jesus died on the cross, how many of his disciples died with him? Zero. They loved Jesus, they appreciated him, but they weren't willing to die with him. But then on that glorious Sunday, on Resurrection Sunday, they saw Jesus alive, back from the dead, risen from with their own eyes. They saw Jesus. And what happened is they began to scatter all around the world and they were persecuted and they were beaten and they were tortured and they were separated from their families and they were murdered because they wouldn't stop and they couldn't stop telling the world, Jesus rose from the dead. The second reason Paul says you can believe that Jesus rose from the dead is, well, there were 500 eyewitnesses that as Paul is writing this letter, he said, look, there's 500 eyewitnesses that saw Jesus and, and many of them are still alive. You could go talk to them now, he says to this original audience. Maybe the third reason Paul would suggest is he mentions that Jesus appeared to his own brother, James. Why is this significant? Well, because before Jesus rose from the dead, James, the brother of Jesus, thought that his brother Jesus was absolutely crazy. And then he saw with his own eyes, Jesus, his brother, back from the dead. And James becomes the leader of the Jerusalem church and he ends up being persecuted. He ends up being murdered, not because he was the brother of Jesus, but because he couldn't stop and he wouldn't stop telling everybody, including the most powerful people of his day, Jesus, my brother is my Lord. My brother, Jesus rose 
from the dead. And then lastly, Paul appeals to his own life. He says, look, before I was a follower of Jesus, I had a comfortable life. I had a great reputation. I had status. The wind was at my back, but then I met Jesus. And then I realized he really is who he said he was. He really did die on the cross. He really did rise from the dead. And Paul put his faith in Jesus. And do you know what it got him? It got him running for his life the rest of his life. He was persecuted. He was beaten. He, he, was, he was tormented. He, he, he was over and over again persecuted until he was finally murdered. Why would he give up a life of comfort and status and reputation and exchange it all for a difficult and challenging existence? Well, it's simple because he realized Jesus rose from the dead. You know, last Sunday I had the opportunity to be with our Purpose Kids team here at Purpose Church. And, and if your kiddos are not involved in Purpose Kids, let me encourage you to get them plugged in. Pastor Lisa and, and Victoria and Debbie and Laura and my wife Sarah and the rest of their team over there, Monica, they're doing an amazing job with our kiddos here at Purpose Church. And they were concluding a series called Big Questions. And so they invited some of us out to answer some of our kiddos' questions. And here were some of the questions that our kids are asking here at Purpose Church. One question was, what is God's favorite animal? What a great question. They, they actually wrote, I bet it's a giraffe. This kid's confident it had to have been a giraffe. Another question was, can I still be a kid when I get to heaven? Another one, does God love the beach? Oh, I hope God loves the beach. What is God's favorite food? Oh man, I don't know if it's a steak or macaroni and cheese. I'm getting hungry now, but I don't know what it is. But what is God's favorite food? Another question came in that says, how will God help me get an iPad? iPad, amen, right? How will God help me get an iPad? Another question, how do I play with God? Oh, what a good question. How do I play with God? And then one of the last questions that came in was, how do we know that our religion is right? See, our kiddos are asking it. Most of us are asking, how do we know our religion is right? And I, I told these kids, I said, I used the latter illustration. And I said, you know, every other religion is about earning God's love. Christianity is about receiving God's love. And because Jesus rose from the dead, we can be confident in that. But then I told them this. I said, keep asking questions about Jesus because he wants to keep revealing himself to you. And so my hope is that maybe as you experienced our worship service today, maybe you had some questions about, do all the religions basically say the same thing? And maybe you came with some questions and I wanna encourage you, keep asking questions because Jesus wants to continue to reveal himself to you. And what I think he wants you and I to know today is that he is the way, the only way that he is the truth, the only truth, and that he is the life, the only life. And that if you and I will receive his forgiveness, his salvation, we can spend all of eternity with him and with the body of Christ because he truly died on the cross and he factually rose from the dead.